Hello, and you're very welcome to this week's edition of Pricey Talks Real Life. Once again, we have a great chat for you today. Today, I'm going to talk to Frank Meek from the United States. Now, you might ask who is Frank, but let me tell you a little bit about him. Frank is what would be called a retired skinhead. And not just is he a former skinhead, he's an ex-neo-Nazi. And in his teenage years, Frank became notorious for being one of the most well-known neo-Nazi leaders across the whole of the United States. In his young life, it was his life was full of acts of violence, hatred, full of racism and a full believer in white supremacy. Now, Frank ended up in prison and he's going to talk to us about his story, about his young life, about how this all happened. And when he ended up in prison, how he met people from different ethnic backgrounds, how things started to change in 1995 with the Oklahoma bombing in the States, how really that prompted him to to really look at his beliefs. And at that stage, he left the skinhead neo-Nazi movement. Um, and he tells a story. There's a lot to this story. I, I want to say now that Frank is today, as we speak, a civil rights activist and a police reform activist. He's going to tell you that story as well. So it's really interesting. I hope you're going to enjoy it. So let's have a chat with Frank. Frank Mink, it's great to have you here on Pricey Talks Real Life today. I'm looking forward to the chat with you. I'm going to introduce you, Frank, as a civil rights activist and a police reform activist with a past. I'd like to talk about your past a bit, which is a story in itself. Your young life in South Philly, your teenage years, how you were introduced to the skinhead, neo-Nazi, white supremacist world, how you got involved in that became a renowned leader in that world, your prison life, and I suppose the effect that that had on you and people around you and what you're doing today. So, Frank, you're very welcome. How are you keeping? Are you good? I'm, I'm, I'm as good as God lets me to be, and that is amazing. So I'm doing amazing. Brilliant. Well, Frank, I'd like to take you back to your early years as a youth. Your mother was from Ireland. And your father was from Italy. Could you tell us a little bit about your young life in South Philly? Yeah, um, I was born and raised to um, to two drug addicts, uh, alcoholics, who uh, were young, and they had me on a whim. I mean, it was uh, my dad was a drug dealer, my mom was a customer. When I was born, I was actually born with my father's last name, which is Bertolini. So I was born with an Italian last name. But when my mom left my father, she moved back to her Irish neighborhood. And kind of the Catholic church, my mom's family, and just the neighborhood in general said, you should probably change his last name because the Irish and Italians don't get along in Philadelphia. So they took away my, what they would call my Dego, my Italian, my Dego last name. And they gave me my mom's maiden name, which is Mink, which is not even Irish, but as long as it wasn't Italian, that was the key. Yeah. So I was given this, you know, given my mom's old maiden name, which comes into part later on. We'll get into that uh, about what the origins of that name is. So I grew up with just my mom, really. My dad was never really around. And uh, my mom was, uh, you know, trying to struggle to make it. 
Frank, was your mother, you, you mentioned there earlier that your, your mother was a customer of your dad, who was a, a, a drug dealer at the time. Was your mother functioning? Was she able to work and provide for the family? She was she was functioning for the most part. I mean, we struggled to make it. We were sometimes on, on the dole on welfare. And I remember that. I remember being embarrassed because my mom was on, you know, we would get what they call food stamps here in America. And uh, they were these, it's this green and orange fake neon colored money back then that you would get from the government. And I remember being embarrassed to have to go to the store and pull out food stamps in front of people. But I know my mom uh, always, you know, for the most part when I was younger, always had a job. But uh, my mom had some men in her life that would come in off and on. Sometimes they were good men, sometimes they weren't. And um, my mom got remarried to a guy who um, just wasn't a nice man. Um, yeah. He, and what uh, age were you then, Frank? At what age would you have been around then? About eight or nine when he came into my life. Yeah, about okay. nine. So he comes into my life and, and hated my guts. You know, just I was not part of his plan. He moved in my mom's house and now was living with us. And he became the man of the house. And he liked to put his hands on me uh, physically. Uh, he liked to, he liked to brag about how tough he was and, um, you know, would sucker punch me, uh, hit me with things. Uh, I wasn't allowed to talk in my own house a lot because, uh, wow. dumb people, dumb, you know, you'd say idiots like you make my stomach turn. So I don't even talk. And, uh, I, I went home every day from school. I used to dread going home every day from school. And, uh, my school was only a couple blocks from my, from my house. And, uh, for people, some people will identify with this, but. Every day I would walk home and I would wish to just get hit by a car. If I could just get hit by a car, I wouldn't have to go home and be in home, be in a house with a bully. I mean, he literally bullied me every day and I hated it. And so, um, you know, I would try to get hit by cars and uh, I'm a super athletic kid. I always have just born and raised. I'm just, I'm just an athlete. I'm just an athlete. I'm unbelievably fast, uh, was naturally fast, um, and always played sports, neighborhood sports. And so every time a car would come to hit me, I jet out of the way and get out of the way of it every time. And I wouldn't even want to do it. It just, my body was like, yeah, it, natural you know? instinct. Yeah. 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 Get out of the way. Yeah. And I felt like even more of a loser, like you can't even get hit by a car. So that starts to happen in my life. And, and I just hated life. And then eventually um, I'm getting in trouble at school all the time. And my uh, stepfather told me one day when I came home from getting in trouble at school that, uh, I had to go move with my real dad. By this time, I'm, I'm uh, 13. I've been living with his abuse for, you know, four years, three and a half years, yeah. hating it. And so when they told me I had to go live with my real dad, which I know my real dad, uh, you know, he's, you know, he's not the dad type. He, he still hangs with his friends and still yeah. lives at a bar and uh, at a tavern and where he's at, at that stage frank you probably would have done anything to get away from that bully your stepdad just to get out of that environment absolutely absolutely just wanted to be away from him i wanted to have at least a little bit of freedom i mean i was always punished i was always grounded so now i get to go up to my dad who my dad just doesn't give a crap what i do um but i had to change schools so I changed schools that year. So I went from a school in my mom's neighborhood that was very diverse, mixed of all races, uh, probably more predominantly Irish, Irish kids. Um, but, you know, there was everything was there. Well, I went yeah. to my dad's neighborhood and he lives up in an all, almost all black section with a small. Was that, was that in, in um, South Philly also? And that was in Southwest Philly. So it's a different so, section. Yeah. 
So, um, right, which is kind of like West Philly. So if you ever seen the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, yeah. you know, you know, West Philly, born and raised on a playground where I spent most of my days. Um, so I move up into, into like that area. And so now I got to, we live caddy corner from a housing projects, which was all black. And um, I go to an all black school and this was nothing nice, man. It just, it, you know, we got to be real about this. It was not a nice school. A lot Tough of environment. Yeah. A lot of violence, especially if you were a white kid, there's probably about a thousand students and there's probably maybe 20 of us that were white, white males. And I'm going to tell you, not 20%, just 20 of us. <laughs> and yeah. so uh, I joined some of the sports teams. I made the sports teams at that school, but it just didn't save me. I mean, there was days I would have to walk home late because I would stay for baseball practice or we had you know, baseball practice and I would leave and I'd have to walk through super tough neighborhoods. And, and I was- you uh, get- do you get beat up, Frank, when you're, you know, in school and walking home from school in these neighborhoods? Yeah, I got jumped all the time. I mean, at least once a week I would get jumped. Or even in school, I seen some black kids rolling on a, a white friend of mine one day in the bathroom, like just jumping him and, you know, humiliating him. And I walked in the bathroom and, and these black kids see me and one of them happened to be on the baseball team with me. So when I seen them beating up this white kid, I stopped, obviously, walking in, but I was already far enough in the bathroom that the door had shut behind me and i was like oh crap and uh i'm looking at this white kid who's looking at me and the black kid turns to me and goes uh frank you're cool right meaning like i'm not going to go tell on them for robbing and beating this white kid and i was like yeah i'm cool and i walked out of that bathroom they let me walk out and um this sense of remorse and guilt overwhelmed me that i left that kid there that I would have wanted somebody to help me and I didn't help him. I just left school that day and I never went back to that school ever again. Cause I was How so old were you, Frank? 13. Yeah. You never went back to school after that day. Never went back to school. And what did you do? So, uh, I cut school for, uh, the last couple months, just hanging out in the neighborhood. And I had some black friends in my neighborhood cause we all kind of hung on street corners in Philadelphia. So, um, but I hung with a majority white group, but we had black friends in our group and, um, anyway, just started drinking and doing what the older boys were doing and just cutting school. And finally my dad found out, but I still graduated for whatever reason, they still graduated me. And my dad, um, was mad that I missed a lot of days of school in the end when he got my report card, but I got to leave Philadelphia that summer. My cousins lived up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania which is where I'm sure none of you know what that means, but that's where all the Amish people live in America. Yeah. It's like they're, it's kind of like they're, they're gang turf. You go up there. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's Amish everywhere. And they really are just Amish. Like um, they don't like reenact being Amish just because people are looking at them. They really live that way. So my cousin who is not Amish, he is what I would call a normal. I mean, not, not I'm not knocking the Amish way, but to me that wasn't normal. And my cousins and my family that lived up there were normal. Well, he was a bit well, old. Frank, could I, could I ask you, just on your cousins, were your cousins on your dad's side or were they on your mom's side? My mom's side. So, um, so they, that's my mom's sister and her kids. So they, they live up there. And um, my cousin, who I really looked up to, he was older than me. Um, he was kind of a skateboarder. Uh, punk rock kid the year before because I visited him the year before the summer before I moved up I've been up in that area 
and he was a skateboarder punk rock kid and i thought he was so cool and so i go up there to live this summer and he's not a punk rock anymore he's shaved bald and he's part of this group called the skinheads which were all neo-nazis at the time that i knew of and uh so i start to hang out with him that summer and and again i'm just enthralled in these kids uh there are 15 16 17 year old farm boys who all have shaved heads and swastika tattoos and cars and they bring girls around and they have beer and i just think they're the coolest thing well when they would all start talking about racism and 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 how multi you know multiracial society will never work uh, i don't know what that means but when they would talk about black and white not getting along i'm like you just have no idea because they don't live around black people. They live around our sure. people. So my cousin would say to tell them, like, yo, my little cousin, again, I'm like this little guy hanging out with all these big, bad neo-Nazis. My cousin would say to them, yo, like, you don't understand. My cousin lives in a really bad neighborhood in Philadelphia. And so all these neo-Nazi guys would always ask me questions. Like, what's it like? And what do they do? And do you really take the bus with black people every day? And I would say, yeah, I I have to take the bus and the train to school every day. And it's mostly all black people. And what that did to me, the, the, the what it did to me was my parents, both my parents, if I came home with a black guy, whatever, my parents didn't give a rat's butt about me. So they never said, Oh my God, are you okay? What's wrong, son? How's school? They, they never asked me any of these questions. But when, um, these guys were asking me what's it like growing up around black people and they wouldn't use the word black. They would use the N word. I felt like they were asking me, Frank, how's your life? How are you? You felt a connection there. You felt a connection. You felt cared for. Absolutely. And so I loved being around these guys. And, uh, one night they all take me to this concert with them and I, I, I'm not shaved. I don't have a shaved head yet. I have still have this little skater, punk rock haircut a little bit and uh we go to this nightclub and these neo-nazis are beating up everybody inside and uh and, but they're not beating me up because i'm with them and at the end of the night all the neo-nazis got kicked out of the club but they're standing outside the club and now i'm i'm 13 going on 14 and um i'm standing with all these guys outside the nightclub and the whole nightclub is scared of them I, I see it in their faces. I see how they won't walk past us. They would, if their car was parked by where we were standing, they took the long way to come to their car. And when these guys, when the neo-Nazis would say things to people, I would look at them and I would see this fear in their eyes. And I loved it. Oh, I so loved that. Because look, let's was be that because the, Was that because the fear was gone that you had had when you were back in Philly? It, it, it was this it was it was that yeah up until that point in my life like i couldn't pinpoint this then i mean i'm a 14 year old i was a 14 year old scared little boy who's scared of everything i was scared of men in my life i was scared of my parents i was scared of my school i was scared of my dad's house i was gonna have enough food to eat and now someone is scared of me even though they're not really scared of me they're scared of these other guys but to me they were scared of me and I loved it. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. So that night we would go to this party afterwards and after party of the club. And I'm with these guys and these older neo-Nazi guys that I don't even really know because we just happened to meet them at the club. But my cousin knew them. They start, you know, making fun of my hair. 
And they said, you know, when are you going to shave this crap off your head? And I looked at around. I said, man, I'd do it right now if you let me. And they said, let's do it. And they sat me down. And every guy that was there that night, they took these clippers. And one guy would do one row. Then the next guy would do the next row. And they're Sig Heilin and same white power. And, you know. And that I mean, was the beginning. That was the beginning, Frank. Did you understand at that stage, you, you know, you said they were Sig Heiling and they were talking Nazi talk. Did you understand what they were talking about? Not really, but I, I, I understood this. I mean, here these guys are idolizing Hitler, who my whole life, my my grandfather's fought in the war. You know, I've always been told this is a really bad, bad man. But these guys are praising him and telling me that, like, no, he was just misunderstood. He was fighting for the white race. You know, he the only reason why they talk bad about him is because they lost the war and that he was actually good. And, you know, and I'm like, I'm like oh. Okay, all right. You know, black people do. You know, I'm I'm really do have this hatred towards black people. So maybe they're right. And uh, I had no idea. Uh, growing up, I would hear Jewish jokes in my neighborhood, in the Irish neighborhood, and in my dad. You know, I just heard in my family. I would hear Jew- Jewish jokes a lot. Like if you picked up a penny off the ground, they say, "Ha, oh, what are you a Jew? How do you start a Jewish parade to roll a penny down the street?" Ha ha ha. And I never really got the joke. I didn't get it. And I remember people would go to the store if they went to the local store and, and, and the guy didn't give them the right change back. They'd be like, yeah, John tried to Jew me today. And everyone laughed. Ah, ah, ah. I didn't get any of those jokes. But when I start hanging out with these neo-Nazis and going to their little meetings and they start talking about how the Jews, the Zionist, the Zionist occupational government, the, the Jews secretly run America and they're siphoning money off of our federal reserve system, our money system, and they're giving it to Israel so they can cause the next world war. I got the joke. You know, I would ask my uncle when I was a kid, when they would laugh about the Jewish jokes, I say, what's that mean? And my uncle one time said to me, oh, see that Frank, the Jews are kind of notorious with money. And he stopped and he goes, you know what, Frank, you'll get it when you're older. When I was sitting in those meetings, I got the joke. So, Frank, you're 14, 15, and this has been an influence on your life this summer with your cousin. Now you have your head shaved, your skinhead. Did you go back to Philly or did you stay with your cousin? What, What was the next stage for you? No, I went, I went back to Philly. I had a, I was supposedly going to go back to high school. And, um, so I was going to go back. My mom said I could move back in with her, that John, my stepdad would be different. Um, that didn't last very long. I moved back down, moved in back with my mom for a, a week, two weeks. John couldn't keep his hands off me. I, I, I went to school. I got arrested at school for having a, a weapon at school and, um, wasn't welcome back at school. So I, uh, stopped going to school and, uh, just started traveling with the neo-Nazis. So I would live in the suburbs out in Philly, uh, where some neo-Nazi guys would have a clubhouse and I would live there. Um, I would go and live in different people's houses, like other members houses. How did you, how did you survive? Like, how did you get food? How did you live? How did, how did you, I mean, you need dollars, you need money to do that stuff. How did you do that? Mostly through criminal activity, selling guns, um, selling stolen guns a lot, just being a being uh, living on the under the radar and 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 being kind of uh, living the criminal element of this movement, um, you know, because we're all about you know effing the system, you know. So you know that's what we did, like um, you know, just little criminal activity. And I would get little small jobs. I remember I worked at 
I worked at pet shops all the time. I don't know why. I don't know how. I just always worked at pet stores. So I would get like a job for a couple months in the pet stores in the local area. Um, and I would keep that job until uh, a neo-Nazi function was coming up for a weekend. And my work was like, you need to work that weekend. And I said, no, nah, I got to go to this event. And I can't do it. And said, well, you're fired. And I said, all right, well, I don't care. And I go off and go live with the neo-Nazis again. And um, but a lot of times, man, to be honest, it was living off of like criminal activity. Just so I want your listeners to know, there's no drugs. I, there's no drugs in our movement. So there was no drug dealing, none of that. We weren't allowed to do drugs. If you did drugs, we we kill you or kick you out. No drugs allowed. So it was mostly all other ways and uh, selling stolen credit cards and stolen uh, calling cards, um, which was a big thing back then. So um, yeah. So and how did how did you progress? And I mean, you became a renowned leader as a as a young teenager renowned eventually around America, but how did you get to that stage? Did you recruit people into your own gang or did you stay with these guys? How, how did it get bigger for you? Yeah. So, um, you know, I was always still in and around Philadelphia all the time. And, uh, being that I was one of these, uh, kids that was uh, a city kid, I was an actual, a lot of our recruits were all from the suburbs. So what has, what was happening? I mean, I still was living in and around my mom's neighborhood and, uh, or just being in and around my mom's neighborhood and my dad's neighborhood. I started to know that like, I needed people cause all the other people I was knowing were in the suburbs. So I, me and, uh, another guy who became like my best friend, we were like, we got to build the crew here. So we started building crews around Philadelphia. We took over like a real popular punk rock alley. It was a, a spot where all the punk rockers used to hang out. And every weekend we would just show up there. Again, all the neo-Nazi crews or any other crew that used to come around, all of their troops, all of their recruits, whoever, were all from the suburbs. Well, now I'm bringing guys that are right directly in the neighborhood. So we're just swamping those areas with people all the time. And uh, all the left-wing groups, the anti-fascist groups that hung out, we started like way outnumbering them. Plus, the guys that I was getting in the city were crazy. Like I was going and recruiting like the craziest guys from my neighborhood. You know, uh, how do you recruit somebody into a neo-Nazi white supremacist group? How do you do that? Very easily, very easily. So, as you know, people grow up in uh, in America. There was a big thing where. Um, you know, there was things like BET, like black entertainment television, right? So you would hear people say, I want to be proud of my of white people that would say, I want to be proud of my heritage. And I'd say, yeah, man, that's what we're all about. You know, they get to be proud of their heritage. But if we say we're proud to be white, then we're racist. So I say, if you want to be proud of your heritage, man, come join my group. So here's the bait and switch. I say, yo, come, come join my group. We're, we're, that's what we're all about, being proud of our heritage. But when you come to our group and you come to our meetings, we never talk about our heritage. We talk about everybody else, right? So we take this false pride of, I want to be proud of this, and we turn it into hate. And we say, you want to be proud of, but look at what they're doing. Look at them dirty people. Look at what, how they're hurting our, our, our group. And so you turn their, their pride, this false pride into hate. And it just, it works. It's very easy. I mean, it really you, works. You, what did you do when you, when you had these groups? So you're in Philadelphia, you, you, I mean, you've recruited and you're recruiting. What did you do? Did you go out? You obviously got attention from the police, but did you go out beating up people, breaking into places, robbing places? What, what did you do? And was it daily? Was it weekly? 
Uh, no, that's exactly what we did. We we uh, would rob our enemies of everything they had. Um, if you were a left wing group, we were going to break into your place and 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 do whatever. But we also, for camaraderie, we would go around and do violence to people. We go around and beat up gay people. We go around and uh, you know go what we would call bum bashing, just because, like the movie Clockwork Orange, where they go around and they're beating up the bums. Like we used to idolize that type of stuff. So we'd go around and do that. And that's like camaraderie for us. Do you, mean, do you mean the homeless people? Is that what you mean? Yes, the, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And did, did that ever make you feel guilty, Frank, inside, you know, doing that? Not really. Not at the time. I mean, there might have been once or twice where I might have took it a little bit easy on somebody. Um, but no, because I was doing it with my boys. I was doing it with my crew. Like this is, and, and also when you're part of these groups, these right wing neo-Nazi type groups like this, our whole thing is our image and our image is that we want the other crews, the other neo-Nazi crews and the left wing groups. We want them to know those guys in Philly are crazy. Like don't mess with them. So everything we did was just to build this image and this toughness and this camaraderie amongst ourselves. And Frank, I'm I'm very interested in uh, one thing I, I read about you, which I, I actually found it amazing that you were a teenager and you had a TV channel. You had a TV show on a TV channel. That's that's obviously then was possible in America. Could you tell us a bit about that, how that came about? Maybe tell the listeners what, what that was about. Sure. So there's a, a little bit of a story that leads up to that. And that is that um, by the time I'm 16, 15, 16, uh, 16, uh, I have um, a bunch of warrants put out for my arrest because of all the violence I'm doing all across the city in the state of Pennsylvania, uh, some stuff I did in the state of New Jersey, and some stuff I did in the state of Delaware. So I have like warrants for my arrest by the police everywhere. So my movement decides to, they can't kill me, right? Because I have such a lot of, a big following. Uh, they can't kill me, but they're mad because I'm bringing a lot of heat on the people. And now the people in my group are like robbing banks. And we I, I didn't do that at the time, but there was guys in our groups that were out robbing banks and doing big heist. So they were kind of getting mad. Like I'm bringing a lot of this petty um, heat down on us. Okay. So the head of the, the East coast neo-Nazis, who was like my best, one of my best friends says, Frank, we got to get you out. of We got to get you out of state. We got to get you out of here. And I had, I had just gotten, uh, money from a, from a job that we did. So I had some money to get out of town and, and, uh, he bought me a bus ticket and says, here, I'm buying you a bus ticket. You, you have to go. And then they send me out to Indiana. So I move out to the state of Indiana. So now I'm in the cent- central part of America, in the Midwest. So I move out there and I'm living in a, in a safe house, a, a real safe house. And for that, you know, it's where a bunch of other, yeah, yeah. A bunch of other neo-Nazis lived who were also wanted by their police and whatever, or FBI, they're wanted. So they all, we all live in this one house and the house is kind of boarded up and you can't really see inside of it. And, um, and it was a bunch of older neo-Nazis, um, who I didn't get along with very well. I was young. I was very ambitious and, uh, you know, I'm a city kid. So I talk a lot of trash. Anyway, I wasn't getting along very well with these guys. So I get a job real quick. I'll tell you the story. I get a job working as a con for a concrete guy, um, who hires me without, you know, checking my real name just says, I don't care if you're a good worker, not a neo-Nazi, nothing like that. So, at that time, I start running into. I started going to all these little Aryan festivals. That's where neo Nazis gather. Uh, this is 
again, this is pre-internet, so we don't have websites. This is still before the internet. So the way we would connect with each other was they would have a little concert or little get-togethers in different regions. Well, I'm still making it to these regional concerts and stuff, and I'm met up with these skinheads from these neo-Nazis from the state of Illinois, which is right next door. And I really liked these guys. They were younger. They were fun. And to be honest, they had girls. They had girls. I hung out with them. So yeah. I thought, these guys are cool. Well, in the midst of me getting this job working for a concrete guy, my concrete boss takes me to his bo- uh, his apartment one day and says, hey, I'm going to leave you in my apartment. And tomorrow, I'm going to drive you to your Springfield friends, you know, if you don't mind. He says, uh, but tonight, to stay at my place, I'm going to go over to my girlfriend's house. You can stay in my apartment. You'll be fine. Now, I told you there was no drugs in my movement, but by 16, I'm a full-blown alcoholic. Like every night, drinking all the time. It goes along with my neighborhood. It goes with my family lineage to be a drunk. Like yeah, that. yeah. So I get all drunk in his apartment, and I try to kill myself because I I I can't sit by myself. Right, I have no connection to this this little town of Terre Haute, Indiana. I have nowhere to go. I'm sitting in this guy's apartment. I, I don't even know where to walk. I don't even know where I am in this town. So I, he just says, "Stay in my apartment. I'll come get you in the morning, and I'll try." Uh, you're, f- you're fueled with alcohol in his apartment. Is that right? Yes. So I decide to cut my wrist open, write out a little suicide note because I'm a drunk idiot. And uh, well, so I happen to go outside of his apartment at like two o'clock in the morning and uh, I'm covered in blood and his, his neighbors see me and his neighbors think I killed my boss. They, they never seen me before. Yeah, they, they just they, see the blood. Yeah. They see the blood and they see a stranger covered in blood. So they call the police, police come and get me. Uh, I tell them a fake name so they can't find my warrant. I don't have ID on me. So they take me to a mental hospital while I'm at this mental hospital, this lockdown mental institution, um, two days into it, I tell them my real name Well, they tell the police, my real name and the police and the hospital comes back to me and says, you have a bunch of warrants for your arrest and we're going to figure out a way and ship you back East. So you can take care of these warrants. And I'm like, well, that's not helping me very much, but okay. So anyway, called these skinheads up, these neo-Nazis up from Springfield, Illinois, and said, guys, you got to come break me out of this mental hospital. They showed up in the middle of the night. The next night, my my window to my room overlooked the parking lot, and they came and they started shooting through my window. And uh, these orderlies, the big guys at the hospitals who are supposed to keep us under control, they come running down to my door, but I had put all my furniture against my door to block the door from them opening it. Well, all mental hospitals don't have doors you push in. They only have doors you pull open. So when they pulled yeah. out my door, all my furniture is just sitting there. And I'm like, what are you doing? All right. Anyway, I jumped out the second story window from this mental hospital and uh, I land on the ground. I'm fine because I'm an athlete. Seriously, I just jump, bounce right back up and I run and I get in the car and I go to Springfield, Illinois. And that's going to be my new residence. And when I get to Springfield, Illinois, I'm recruiting. And uh, before I get to the TV show, I'll tell you one of the easiest ways I can recruit. Well, I'm, I'm listening to your story there. Just even alone, so much has happened. You've said so much there. It's incredible. And then you, so now you're, okay, you continue. You're, you've gone back to, you're, you're over in Illinois now recruiting again. Yeah, I'm recruiting. What I would do is I would hang outside of a, hang outside of a high school. Now, again, it sounds a little bit creepy seeing a guy my age now say hang outside of a high school, but I'm high school age at the time. I just happened to have a big swastika tattooed on my neck and tattoos on my head. And I would hang outside the school 
And I would talk with like the skater kids, the punk rock kids, the emo kids, the goth kids, just kind of became friends with some of them. And, and some of the local neo-Nazis were friends with those kids. Well, when they would hang out with us, other kids would pick out, pick on them. The, the jocks, the, the sports kids, they'd pick on these kids, except for when I was there, they stopped picking on them. So these kids start liking when I show up every day. And now I just start slowly recruiting out of that. And we went from five neo-Nazis to about 20 in about two months. Yeah. At that time, I knew that we had to. So you, you're, you're picking up the easy targets as well, Frank. So you know what you're doing now on recruiting. You, you know how to recruit. Right. They hate, they hate the jock kids. They hate the sports kids because they've been pushing them around for two years now, except for when I'm around. So now I get these kids to hang out. So what happened was um, a couple of people were seeing the, this growth that we were doing in the neo-Nazi world. And a buddy of ours said, hey, why don't you, there's what they call cable access. That's like a cheap version of your cable networks. Okay. So you can get all the big channels, ESPN, all that on your cable, but they also have local regional stations where you can yeah, okay yeah. where a lot of religious shows are go and be religious yeah I've, I've experienced that in the states yeah, yeah. yeah a lot of community activist shows well we go there and we sign up to have our own tv show and america freedom of speech you have to allow it, anybody it doesn't it doesn't matter what you're going to talk about it's freedom of speech as long as you don't talk about committing violence or ask for money on air you're allowed to have a tv show so we sign up, we get this little TV show at this cable access network, which was filmed at a college. So it's, you know, college kids that are our are, are cameramen who don't believe what we believe, but this their job, their job is to make a TV yeah. show. So Frank, just remind us, how old are you at this stage? 16, going, going on 17, because while I'm there, I turned 17. So I'm getting this TV show put on. I'm causing all this trouble. They're doing newspaper reports all the time. Like, why is there this new rise of neo-Nazis in Springfield, Illinois? Now here's this neo-Nazi group getting bigger and causing tons of trouble. Again, by this and time... And what was the response to the TV show? Like, you were, you were broadcasting in the evenings. Were you getting a response to this? Yeah, they were doing newspaper articles about it and doing TV sh and doing local media about it all the time, which did nothing but promote us all the time. So within that time, um, I get arrested again for violence, just a fight at a, at a mall. And uh, the cops find out my real name and uh, they find out of all these warrants for my arrest back east. Well, when they called back east and said, hey, we got this guy who has warrants for his arrest, you know, can we send them back? And they're like, well, we're not going to pay for it. it, it he's a juvenile. We're not going to extradite, what they call extradite, you know, they're not going to extradite me for juvenile warrants. The state's not going to pay that type of money. So they wind up just dropping my warrants on me. How crazy. Everything. Everything. How crazy. Like that's, so now I become an absolute madman because I kind of kept low a little bit because of my warrants. I kind of stayed out of a little bit of trouble. Well, now I'm full blown back into, you know, I have no more warrants for my arrest, which was crazy. So there was some left-wing groups that kind of were coming around at the time, you know, trying to make their stand against these new neo-Nazis. And I didn't like that. When you say left-wing groups, just for us listening here, what, what do you mean by left-wing groups? Like uh, anti-fascist groups like Antifa or Antifa, um, whatever you want to call them. 
so uh, the anti-fascist movement, the anti-racist movements, these groups that were very anti-racist. Yeah. There was skinheads that were against racism. They were called SHARP, S-H-A-R-P, skinheads against racial prejudice. They were all what you would call Antifa. So, okay. So one of their members was friends with some of my friends in this town. And uh, they all thought he was kind of cool. They grew up with the guy. And I kept saying, he's not cool. Yeah, you might know him as a lifelong friend, but this is a war. We have a war going on. And uh, finally, one day, I just kind of got sick of it. And uh, on Christmas Eve, I um, called him up and said, hey, come on over. We're going to have a little Christmas gathering. And uh, he came over and we kidnapped him. And we violently tortured him for hours. So until we let him go, you know. We we decided. Did, he, did you what did you did you did you beat him assault him when you say you you tortured him for hours what what we beat him pistol whipped him split his head open split his mouth open uh, punched him kicked him tied him up did all that stuff and let him then go. let him go and I, I had done this before this is this so there's going to be some retaliation for this Frank there's going to be some was, retaliation that's what I was hoping I was hoping he was going to go get his crew and then they would try to come back at us and then we can annihilate all of them. That's, that's what goes on in my brain because I'm broken. I'm an alcoholic egomaniac with low self-esteem who's a bona fide racist who is looking for a race war every day. That's all I planned for was a race war. And I'm thinking, good, come back with your guys. Uh, well, obviously he goes to the police and says, hey, I've been kidnapped. <laughs> you know? Well, he had to go to the hospital and the hospital called the police and the police came and visited him in the hospital and, and he told them what happened. So the next taping of my TV show is going to happen. I go to the next taping of the TV show and uh, there's a bunch of undercover cops in there. And I don't know it when I first walk in and they arrest me for a kidnapping. And uh, I was 17. I just turned 17. And when I get into this, when I get arrested, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting to go to the juvie center, you know, go back to do some juvie time. And they said, nah, you're 17. You, you, you strong arm robbed and kidnapped a man with a gun. You're, you're an adult. You want to do big boy stuff? You can do big boy time. So they charged me as an adult at 17. And uh, while I'm getting and I'm pleading guilty, I pled, I didn't go to trial because I, I videotaped the whole torturing and kidnapping of this man. So the cops got a, got a, <laughs> got a tape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it doesn't look good. And plus, my case was very high profile. You know, here's this neo-Nazi guy with a TV show causing all this trouble and havoc in this town. When when they tried you, what 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 was your sentence, and what happened? The, I plea bargained, so they gave me a chance to not go to trial because I would have got found guilty, and I would have done like fifteen to twenty years for aggravated kidnapping. So uh, I mark it up to the color of my skin. Um, I only got three to five years in the big prison and the big boy and a real 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 deal. Like what was it? What what is we see again over here on this side of the pond? We see programs about American prisons. They're, they're pretty violent, pretty rough places to be. What was it like for you at seventeen going in? I know you 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 probably had a group to go to. Yeah, that would be the stereotype that I sort of think of when I when I think of an American prison. You've got different clans, different gangs, groups. What was it like for you, Frank? Um, you know, and I I I, I, I say this um, and just to be honest. Um, prison wasn't nothing and it's not because i was this big tough guy or anything like that but i was a little celebrity to the neo-nazi world in there i was the guy with a tv show gang my our, our click and our crew of gangs or, or however you want to call us um they took pride in protecting me you know i was this little celebrity neo-nazi um and who on top of that 
I knew all the literature. I knew uh, when these guys would talk, you know, these these Aryan guys in prison, they they hate black people. You know, they they hate Mexicans. When I would talk about the Jews, they were like, "Damn, like you really know your you really know your stuff." So I was like this like well educated racist to them. So when I so how did you how did you in a prison world? Prison's a melting pot. Mm-hmm. You've got all sorts of races in a prison. How did you connect or? not connect or stay away how did you survive in that environment being that i was 17 and a young kid and most of my gang members were older than me there was a couple younger guys like me but no no i was the youngest uh, at one point i was the youngest guy in the prison all together and then later on this other black kid that i i had known from the county jail system that he was in the same county jail with me he got sent up and he was like three months younger than me so then he was like the youngest kid in the prison but um and i i connected with with him in the county jail, me and him, because in the county jail, when you're waiting your sentencing before you get sent up state prison, um, you're kind of cool. Like you just kind of you keep, you keep your stuff together because, you know, you're waiting to go to trial. You know, you're yeah. hoping that good things happen, whatever. So me and this one kid, G, we had just connected just because we were the youngest kids in the county jail. And we played cards together, played card games and stuff. Um, he was kind of a funny, super funny kid anyway uh, i i'm a city guy so I, I can get along with other urban people and when he got sent up to state prison like me and him already had a connection now in 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 the movies and sometimes on on tv shows they make it seem like we never talk to each other and we don't do anything with each other if there's not a war going on in the prison not a gang war or a race war going on at the time we talk to each other because we, yeah, yeah. Because we're dealing drugs with one another. We're getting things behind the guards from one another. Yeah. We're selling things to one another. Um, for the most part, if we're trying to keep peace, we talk. And um, and being being a sports guy, you know, an athlete, as you know, you've played sports. You're in prison again. My what I see is in playing basketball and playing sports in the yard and that type of stuff. Did you get involved in that? Yeah, Frank? I, I did. And when I first got up state prison. I played basketball with my Aryans. My, my Aryans are my, the name of our gang. I would play basketball with some of the Aryans. Um, these are all bikers. And like, you know, the biker, biker gangs. It's who these guys are. They don't know how to dribble a basketball. They don't, they, you know, they don't, they just don't. That's not what they grew up doing. They grew up driving motor, riding motorcycles and fixing bikes. And they can fix your transmission at four years old. I don't know nothing about that stuff. So when I would play basketball with them, they were horrible. And I could dribble around all of them. And I can, And then we also played football a lot. And that's my game. That was the game I grew up playing. That was the game I was very, you know, just had made a name for myself growing up as a kid playing uh, as a wide receiver. Yeah, I was very fast. Again, uh, can, knew how to handle the football. So playing football with them was not fun at all. Like, just give me the ball and I'm going to run around them. Yeah. So when G and some of the other black kids who I just kind of had a connection with, I, I worked in a chow hall with a bunch of them. Uh, when they would go play football and I seen that they were kind of good. And even when they played basketball, I see that they were kind of good. I'd be like, yo, let me play. And at first they'd be like, no, get out of here. I have a swastika on my neck. Remember, I have a swastika tattooed on my neck. And eventually G kind of backed me up and said, ah, let the white boy play. So, yeah. So, so you painted a good picture there. Like, but, and from what I'm reading into this, Frank, is that in, in the prison world, you've, you've got a buddy that you, you knew previously, G, and you're now with, as you've the Aryan race, we'll call them races in the prison on one side and you've the black race on the other side and you're, you're, you're mingling with both of them. Yeah. You know, you're playing sports, you're mingling with both of them. You got buddies in both camps. Mm-hmm. 
And so there's, uh, whereas there's, in the outside so, in the outside world, that's not something you would have done. But in prison, that's something you're doing. Right. And I grew up again. I grew up and played on all black baseball team. So again, I, because of my area, it wasn't far out of the norm for me to be like, okay, you know, again, most of these bikers and Aryans are from trailer parks in Illinois, right? They don't, they didn't really mingle with black people. So again, it's like this, one of these things where I just happen to be blessed. So not only, not only again, are these guys good at football with me, but they made me laugh and I would play cards with them a lot. And and I would talk about life, right? I, I had a girlfriend on the outside who was pregnant. I was about to have a baby in there. And and so did some of the other black kids had some girlfriends and had some babies on the outside. And so did the white guys. But I just, some of the black kids that I became closer with, when my daughter was born, I didn't go to my Aryan guys and be like, yo, I had a, a, a new white kid or anything. Because the Aryans, the older bikers, they would tell me nasty things about my girlfriend, even though they didn't know her. They'd be like, yo, your girlfriend's going to yeah, be yeah. banging everyone while you're in here and da, da, da. And for whatever reason, the black kids I was kind of cool with never said that stuff to me. They and when I yeah, when yeah. I had my daughter and I told G and Jello and Tony, I was like, "Yo, I had my kid." Here's the first men on the planet Earth that I'm saying, "Hey, I'm a dad," and it happened yeah. to be to these black kids who I just happened to have a little bit more of a connection with. And Frank, did this start to change your it outlook? Did. I mean, it did it in the fact that I remember. You know, my whole my whole big spiel on being a white racist was I'm from the ghetto, too. I never had a silver spoon put in my mouth, blah, blah, blah. Here I kidnapped somebody with a firearms and got three years. G stabbed a crackhead in the leg and got 16 years. Did doubt start committing? Not in, in there. I just knew that I was just kind of living life. I'm just making the best of the situation. I'm, I'm a survivalist. I'm just trying to survive yeah. the best I can. But when I got out of prison, because now I'm getting released from prison, I'm going to go try and go back to my my old, you know, again, it is an American History X where I left the movement in prison. It doesn't happen like that. Um, when I got released from prison, I'm still an Aryan. I'm still a neo-Nazi. When I get out of prison, I'm going to go back to my group. I'm going to get everything going again. I can't wait. I'm making plans on getting my group big again because it had kind of faltered since I left. When I went to prison at 35 guys we had in neo-nazis were now back to five so i was like i want to get back out and get my crew back together things were not gelling good i wasn't a good dad i was a horrible dad i was still a neo-nazi alcoholic thug and my ex-girlfriend at the time who had my daughter was like i don't really don't want nothing to do with you and you were still very young frank what what were you 20 years of age or so i just turned 19 19 yeah. when you got out of prison. So I, I, I get out of prison. Things are not working good for me in Illinois. So I move back to Philly. When I get back to Philly, I come home to the neo-Nazis. I come home a hero. I just got done doing my prison time. I kidnapped one of our main rival group's leader. Like I'm like a little, again, it's all about my ego. You know, right? It's all about my self-perceived ego. But when I got back, like my crew was still big in Philly. Uh, and, you know, it still had a big numbers and, and I knew that we can get it to grow back to even bigger again. So I get back, I want to run my old crew again in Philly. And I'll just tell you, man, I would, I would go to meetings and I would go to rallies and for whatever it, it was, God, man, God was, I, I would go to these things and I would hear people say the most stupid, ignorant, racist things about all black people are like this. And now in the neo-Nazi group, I'm not standing up in front of everyone going, well, that's not exactly true. Come on, guys. But in my head, I'm going, that sounds so stupid. Like, 
So what reaction, how did this, does this reaction you're having now, Frank, how did that lead to you um, trying to move away from the neo-Nazi movement? So, well, again, um, when you have a swastika tattooed on your neck and tattoos all over your head and you already have a felony on your record for life, these aren't good job getters, right? These aren't good people skills. So I couldn't get work. And a buddy of mine finally got me a job working at an antique road show, like, antique, uh, like an antique auction where we sold antique furniture. And the yeah. guy, my buddy says, well, you work, it's a hundred bucks a day. He just needs you for three days for this weekend. I, I had no prospects. I said, sure, I'll take the job. And he goes, but I got to tell you, the guy's a Jew. He still wants the job. And I said, I don't care. I don't have to talk to this guy, do I? And he said these words. He said, I told Keith, the name was Keith Brookstein, this Jewish man. He, my buddy says, no, I told Keith all about you. And he says, Frank, he doesn't give a rat's ass what you believe. Just don't break his furniture. And I showed up and I start working for this man. And, and he was a nice man. He wasn't religiously Jewish, but he was definitely Jewish by, by, by blood and heritage. Did you have attitude, Frank, when so you were we, doing this job? Absolutely had of... attitude. I was like, this guy's a typical Jew, right? He said, oy vey, oh, oy vey, all the time. Oy, what are you doing? My friend, you know, he just looked and act every stereotype I've ever thought of. So I thought, so I'm working for this man and, and, and had a couple conversations with him. He's all right, guy, you know, uh, and uh, at the end of the weekend, he owes me $300. Now, I had already made $600 in tips, and he knows that because you get tipped a lot of money when you handle people's new furniture, right? So I made like sure. $600 in tips. So I'm thinking he's going to come over to me, and in my anti-Semitic, ignorant way, he's going to Jew me. So when he comes walking up to me, my last night there working, it was late. It was like 2 in the morning. We're in New, Jer we're in New Jersey somewhere. He comes over to me. And he goes, hey, I owe you money, don't I? And I said, yeah, you do. Now I've been waiting. I'm waiting for this guy to say, oh, I'm not going to do it. I'm waiting to argue with the guy. And he says, how much do I owe you? And I said, $300. And he says, okay. He pulls out this wad of money. says, here's one. Here's two. Here's 300. He says, you know what? You're a really good worker. Here's an extra hundred bucks. So now I have a thousand dollars. Because of your prior beliefs, you must also be a bit confused yeah. about what's happening here. I mean, I was. And, and plus, not even that. I mean, that, that plus, I just wanted to argue with him because I'm an egomaniac with low self-esteem who loves taking shit out on the world. So I'm waiting for him to say something wrong so I can be like, brah, how dare you? So then on top of that, he says, hey, how are you getting back to Philly tonight? And I said, I don't know yet. The trains weren't running yet. It was like two in the morning. He goes, I, he had a big truck because he had all furniture in the truck. He goes, I'll, I'll give you a ride back in the truck. And I said, all right. And as we're driving, he starts to tell me about how my neighborhood, which I knew this in the end, uh, that my neighborhood used to be Jewish years ago in the 1950s. And he says, I grew up down in that neighborhood. And he starts telling me about how blah, blah, blah. Mm. And as he's driving me through the old neighborhood and about to drop me off, he says, Frank, what do you do for a living? And my, sitting in the passenger seat, you could see the swastika on my neck. And I point to it and I said, I don't do anything. And he says, well, why don't you come work for me full time? And I went and I worked for this man full time. And this man was so kind, yeah. so smart, so generous in his time. And, and, his, and, his, and his conversations and we would sit on these trucks together and he had a big warehouse full of people who worked for him. He had two big storefronts with people that worked for him and he would pick me all the time and say, hey, come on, let's go pick up this furniture. And we'd get in the truck and we'd drive around Philly, New York, New Jersey, go picking up furniture to bring back to get refinished to put into his storefronts. And while we would drive around, we would just talk 
the OJ Simpson trial was going on at the time. So we talked yeah. about what DNA was because that was when everyone started heard of, learning about DNA. And, and so I would, yeah, yeah, would drive, I would yeah. kind of read the newspaper in my broken English reading because I don't, wasn't that educated, but I would read a little bit out of the newspaper and then we would talk about this and that and about life. And, and man, look, I can act like I was this big superior neo-Nazi, you know, Aryan race, master race bullshit all I wanted. But deep down inside, I thought I was an idiot and dumb and stupid all the time because that's why I'm an egomaniac with no self-esteem. That's what made me a racist. And this man, when I would say things like, oh, I'm so stupid. And one time I broke something. I was like, Keith, I'm so sorry. I'm so stupid. And he would go, oh, Frank. And then he'd come over and he grabbed me by the back of my head the one time. And he says, stop saying you're stupid. You're one of the smartest people I know. It sounds like he had a big influence on your life. And so that was the day. So I got to tell you. That day, we're driving back to Philly after I broke something, and he's. I'm waiting for him to because it was payday. It was a Friday. I'm waiting for him to take my cash out of my my envelope and say, "Here's your two dollars." Now you have to give me money for the, the marble top table you broke. And uh, we get to this the spot, and he gives me all my money. He gives me all my money, and he says, "Hey, I'll see you on Monday, right?" I'm thinking I'm fired. So when I'm yeah. walking home that day. I can tell you on the black, Asian, Latino issue, I'd already got this. I just, I just did. God allowed the right people to be in my life to be like, who are you to judge? But I was still always going to judge the Jews. So here's this man who just kindly comes into my life. And when I walked home that day and back to my mom's, I was like, I'm done. I can't do this no more. Like I'm, be- I'm beating my head against the wall every day to try to believe these beliefs. Frank, you say you're done. How do you get out of that? You, you know, how you've, you've created something as well. You're heavily involved. You're done. You stop going how around do where they are. People, places, and things. If they're around, I don't go there. When people would, would talk racist bullshit in front of me, I, I, I just kind of shut down. Whatever. Like, I stayed out of the conversations. Now, look, there was times when I'm first getting out of this where I would see a, a, a black dude selling his food stamps, his welfare on the, on the street corner in Philly. That was a big common thing to do. People would sell their food stamps for 50 cents on the dollar. So they would sell for half price to people. And I would look over and I go, see, maybe the move. And I go, wait a minute. My mom sold her food stamps. How dare me? Okay, you've, you're, you're, your way of thinking and the right people have come into your life, things have happened. It sounds like your boss was a big influence as well. You've got a swastika still on your neck, the side of your neck. How do you, well, I mean, do you get rid of that? It's gone now, that? but it wasn't what gone then. Here? I mean, it was, I didn't know what to do with it. Um, I, I honestly didn't know what to do with it, but I, 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 would, I would think about that and I would say, just because I have this thing tattooed on my neck, like, I, I, I don't want people to pull their children away from me anymore. Right. So I just don't want to spout these beliefs that I don't believe anymore. Like just because I have the swastika on my neck, I can't stick by these beliefs that I know are wrong. I just couldn't. So so I start to just get out of it. And um, I, I by getting out of it again, I just if 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 my neo-Nazi friends called me, I didn't answer the call. So I as I actively get out of the movement, I just I tried to hide it. I, I, if I had to wear a turtleneck, I would wear a turtleneck, but that, that didn't cover it up neither. I, I just, it, it just was there. But what I started to do was like, I just started, you know, I, I had this empathy and it was coming back into me that, that people struggle, that people make mistakes and, and I make mistakes and I'm a human being. So I had that, but I, I was a person who was trying to hide my past from everyone. And then the Oklahoma City bombing happened here. That's in 1995, 
And by that time, I'm out of the movement. I've been out maybe six months. And then to see my movement come back and haunt me, right? What I mean by haunt me was there was a picture of this dead little girl in a fireman's arms that it kept showing over and over and over again. And that picture just kept killing me. So the next day or a couple of days later after Oklahoma City bombing, I walked into the FBI building and I said, hey, I want to talk to you guys. Now they knew who I was. They didn't know I was out. No one knew I was out because, again, I was just a, a guy trying to hide my past. Well, that incident, God allowed for that incident to make me a person stop trying to hide and use my past to be an activist. When you went to the FBI, Frank, you started to, obviously they knew who you were, so you didn't know what had happened with the Oklahoma bombing, but you obviously started to talk to them about the movement and what you knew and you were getting out. And that was another catalyst in you yeah. taking no, a step was, away. That was the end. I knew that I was, and again, I didn't snitch on nobody. Nobody went to prison for anything I said to them FBI agents, nothing. I just talked about why I got into it, how I ran in things, um, you know, how it was so easy to recruit, um, why we're so, you know, they just wanted to ask me questions. In that time, they knew that I was not going to do anything criminal. I wasn't going to go back in undercover, stuff that they had first mentioned. They're like, would you go back in undercover then? And I was like, no, everyone knows I'm out. I'm done. It's done. Uh, so they said, well, why don't you go talk to the civil rights group? So they set me up to go talk to the civil rights group. And then that civil rights group said, hey, will you start talking to some groups for us? And uh, I said, sure. So I went and spoke to a couple Jewish groups and a couple black groups about why I was in it. Did you find did you find the audience were understanding of your story? Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's them? what I was good at doing was that people was were able to understand and relate with what I was saying and saying, oh, OK, like, I get why this guy got into it. I get it. Like he had no other path. It, it just it, it just happens. You mentioned why you got into it, Frank. You know, you came from a very, very troubled family life to getting accepted by a group when you were away for a summer to leading to other things. It was always about acceptance. And you said it yourself, ego and acceptance and low self-esteem. Were you starting to turn around and come out of um, that and getting some I, self-esteem? I, I was, but it's tricky. Right? I'm just not going to sit there and start saying, I totally started feeling better about myself. But I knew that I was, I had a, like, there's a, in America, we have a credit score. You know, what's your credit? So you can borrow money or get an apartment. Well, I had a karma score and my karma score was very low, very low. And so I wanted to build my karma score back up. So that's why I started speaking. I, I still had an about of alcohol and drug addiction that now comes along uh, with that because I still had a lot of underlying problems, which I still do to this day. You know, that's what makes the people alcoholics and drug addicts, you know, yeah. low self-esteem, low self-worth, um, you know, ego issues out the wazoo. So, you know, just to fast forward a little bit, I started working at, uh, I didn't want to be a guy that just went around and said, hey, look at me. I used to do bad stuff. Now I don't do it no more. I knew how to do other things. So I went and I started a hockey program where we got black kids to play the game of hockey, which I love the game of hockey. And I did that for now 20 something years called Harmony Through Hockey. Were, were you, sorry, Frank, just on that Harmony of Hockey, were you involved in yep. a coach? You set up a league? Set up a league and I coached. Just, and then I got really well, good at coaching. You know, not just that I just coached these black kids in hockey and, and try to integrate the game, which was my main purpose was to get more black kids to play this amazing game. I actually got really good at coaching and uh, I wound up winning like, 12 national championships, not just with the black kids. I'm talking about with other teams. I went on to go get a job with other hockey organizations. Uh, I got really good at breaking down hockey footage and videos and, and breaking down hockey players. And 
their tendencies and their good attributes, their bad attributes, and I became a really good coach. Yeah, it, it, it's very coaching. It's quite rewarding, yeah. particularly if you're working with young people and you can see the change and the development. And, you, and, and you're also keeping them away from certain right. elements yeah. of life as well. Yeah, Sport absolutely. is good. My, Sport my, is good. My youngest son, uh, who's 19 now, now got a scholarship and plays hockey at college because, I mean, he's, he grew up around me oh, coaching great, yeah. thousands of other kids his whole life. That was my job. And so he was always playing and coaching, helping me. So, and hockey's a great yeah, sport yeah. where you teach them, you know, if you fall down, no matter if you fall down, I don't care how many times you fall down, get up, get up and get back into the game. Like it's just the greatest game to coach that, that, mon- that mantra in life, you know? And Frank, the hockey became a big part of your life for 20 years odd. The other side of it, speaking and just telling, talking to people in different situations. And I know you're involved in right. civil rights, as a civil rights activist now. You know, you're, you're obviously still involved in that. You're still working yeah. on doing and that so, type of stuff today. Like I said, uh, in prison, the, those black kids accepted me on their team. And then when I got out of prison, I made sports so that I can accept more black kids into our team. So I'm always teammates with them in, in life. And what I see in America, and, and just so I want everyone that's listening, I want everyone to know for 25 years, in my speaking career, I've spoken to over 100,000 police officers because I've done a lot of police conferences on gangs and on hate crimes. Uh, I played hockey with a lot of cops. I've coached a lot of co- uh, cops' kids in, sp- in the sport. I don't hate the police. And I want people to understand that what I'm about to talk about is real and it's not anti-police because uh, I've won tons of awards from federal police to local police, to state police. I've gotten awards for my my service to them. So what I'm about to say and talk about is not anti-police, but it's just the truth because people are my teammates. And I can tell you that in America, we have 3.9% of the world's population, but we have 38% of the world's women's prison population. Women, nonviolent, mostly of color. Okay. Because the police in this country through their different avenues, pulling people over and pulling black people out of their cars in America is so common and so sickening. And it's become just a game to them, to the police, that it has built this thing called mass incarceration. And it is their lobbyist in our government and their union that has allowed for this to continue to happen. See, I stand up against racism no matter where it is. And when I see it, I'm going to call it out. Yeah, well, I suppose, on, again, I'll use the term on this side of the pond over here. We only we see a lot of the stuff that happens in America through the media. You're in the direct uh, line over there. You see what's happening. You're involved with civil rights. You're involved with police reform activity. So maybe, t- you know, as you're saying, tell us so a little bit more because we don't see that. What I want you to think about is that for us, for as Americans and then me as, as a person, when I say these words, I don't mean an organization or even a movement. When I say these words, they mean something to me. And that is that black lives do matter. And when I tell you that when you watch, say, George Floyd, when you watch the government, our civil servants, our, our public servants, the police publicly execute a man for nine and a half minutes. That's what we watched them publicly execute him. Yeah. And then they say, oh, it's, it's, it's you know, the police union say oh, it's one bad and it's not one bad incident. It's not one bad apple. It's that they have set rules up that allow for them, for bad cops to continue to be bad cops. I want to point everything out to everyone, to everyone that's listening. 
the guy, Derek Chauvin, who killed George Floyd, was training officers that day. So think about it. He's training them to be that way. He was a trainer, right? Now, yeah. on top of that, when I was a neo-Nazi, we were told to not get swastikas or tattooed anymore. We were told to stop getting our head shaved and become neo-Nazis that way, to become cops. And tons of people that I know and other organizations did do that. A bunch of people that I came up with became cops. And would those type of people have held the views like white supremacy, racism? Absolutely. Is that exactly what These you're are, talking about there? I friend? mean, and we have it right now. There was just a list put out of, at the minimum, 370 police officers that are part of the group, the Oath Keepers. This just came out like two days ago. Now, how, why do we allow for those people with those beliefs who have been radicalized to be able to look for black people, to pull them over, to pull them out of their cars in front of their children, to look for minor crimes. That's all they're looking for is looking for minor crimes. Uh, and they do it all day long here in America. What can be done? The, the about real it, police reform that we're trying to get to is that they can't just pull us out of cars anymore. And what we can do is because we have technology on our side now is that the police say that they pull everyone out of cars for officer safety. That's their big, big, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's a fraud because leaving people in their cars while you pull people over just to give them a tick. See what they do is they look for them to, to not stop at a stop sign or to not use their turn signal. And because of that, they pull people out of their cars, handcuff them and search their cars. This is, this is not what our bill of rights was about. So what we have is we have to have a good, yeah. a good, it starts with a groundswell movement of people, and it's already started, of us continuously echoing these words. The, the black community in America has been saying my whole lifetime, we're police different. We're police different than everybody else. And if people that have my color, especially with my background, who are now just echoing their words. And do, do politicians follow what you're well, saying they, uh, or are no, they just they, ignore they, you? Some of the Democrats act like they're, they're going to help us out and say that they're, they get it. But, um, you know, the police lobbyists and unions are so powerful that, that they get into office and then they don't help. What we have done to the black community in America is what done, was done to me in my life. That's why you, this thing's happened to you. We've been doing that to the black community forever. Hey, we're being police different. No, nah, you're not. No, you're not. No, no, we are. Look, we have marks on us. Look, we're being police different. Well, you're blowing it a little out of proportion. No, look, there's mass incarceration. No, well, come on now. You know, we, and you know what that does to a person? You know what that does to a community? It drives you effing crazy. And so now it's time that we yeah. get to say, yeah. hey, we're listening. And we, with my mouth, am going to continue yeah. to echo the words that the black community has been saying forever, because we need to fix this. It isn't going to get fixed with more uh, of this, this style of policing. And again, we're not for abolishing police. We need more police on the streets, actually, but we need more well-trained officers who are our servants. But real quick, I, I just want to stay on this just for, for one more minute. This this is sure, what my, ahead, my, yeah, my life ahead. is about. Um, I'm a big believer in God. I I told you my last name is Mink. Uh, years later, I'm talking just only eight years ago. Now I've been way out of the neo Nazis for years. Been out of the neo Nazis, always finding a path with God. Not identifying here or there. I find out that Mink, the last name, is Jewish. I do a DNA test, find out that I'm Jewish. 
I start to I start well, to follow that path yeah. of Judaism. I, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a devout, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a practicing Jew. I did. I and didn't know that, Frank. So wow, I didn't know that. When okay. I read the book that we all read from Christians to Islam to, to Judaism, and we, we all read the, 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 the Torah. It's part of the new, the old Testament, whatever you want to call it. doesn't matter. When we read the Psalms and you read the Proverbs, it always talks about standing up for the poor, standing up for the oppressed. We have mass incarceration, especially of our women in this country, and it is time for us to stand up for the oppressed, stand up for the poor. It is my duty as a Jew to be an activist. It's my job by God, by my Hashem, is to be an activist and to not stop this until we get real concrete changes. The message you're sending out here is, is very, very strong. You know, you've told your story very clearly. And I, I did not expect what you just said there at the end about your name and about the way you've changed uh, and, and that's your life. And also working as a civil rights activist for people of all colour, all races and a police reform activist. You really have put a strong message out there. I want to thank you very much for sharing that with everybody out here today. If anybody wants to find out more about Frank, they just got to Google Frank, Frank Meink, M-E-E-I-N-K. I know, look, I, we didn't talk about it. Frank wrote a book years ago, The Recovering Skinhead. That's also out there as well. It's a really good read. I've read it. It's a really good yeah. read. We could talk all day, Frank. You know, I've only got so much time on the podcast, but I think we're finishing up here on a very strong message. Um, you've told the story very well and you've certainly given a message out there for people. So, Frank, I'd like to take thank you very much for chatting to me today. It's been fascinating. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you very much, Frank. Well, well, what a story we've just listened to. I haven't been doing outros on any of the podcasts in this season, but after talking to Frank, I really felt I had to say something to you guys out there because I found that interview very, very, very interesting. It, for me, there was so much in it. We didn't get to talk about a lot of things. I was going to, and I intended to ask him about the Proud Boys in America, what happened at the last elections with Trump and the storming of Capitol buildings, but we didn't get there today. There was just so much to talk about before that. What I would say is that I believe in that interview, we got a, a look inside at a brutal tour of American racism at its worst. And with Frank, we've also seen more or less a case study of a very traumatised young man in his young years, just became influenced, a drug addict, an alcoholic, and went down a path and became a neo-Nazi racist full of hate. But we also got a stark reminder of the capacity for the human to show redemption. And to me, there was so much in that interview, I've got to try and comprehend it all now. I hope you guys out there enjoyed listening to it. Uh, join me here next week. And I'll have another great guest. So I look forward to chatting on Pricey Talks Real Life next week.